more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Brian Lynn. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Hannah Whitley, a PhD candidate of rural sociology at Pennsylvania State University and a visiting scholar in the School of Public Policy at Oregon State. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me here. We are very excited to have you. I am especially excited, so I'm going to trust Brian to rein me back here. Um, but uh, as an initial disclaimer... All of the graduate students we have on this show, uh, their story and their research is always more complicated than what we can do on the show. And this is probably one of those uh, one of those shows, because to really capture the breath, it takes a whole dissertation as Hannah's as Hannah's doing. Uh, so first, um, tell us a little bit about the area that you're researching. Yes. So we'll take it back to the summer of 2021. If anybody would have heard of the Klamath Basin, that would have been the time. So in May of 2021, a large red and white tent, kind of like a circus tent, was erected randomly at the site of the Linkville Dam in Klamath Falls, south of the Upper Klamath Lake. And nobody knew why, nobody knew what was going on. And so once international media descended onto the town of Klamath Falls, they quickly found out that that tent was erected by two Klamath Basin farmers who wanted to draw attention to the severe drought or rather lack of water allocation from the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation to Klamath Project farmers. So these are farmers who are using water for irrigation to tend to their crops. So all these international media folks came to Klamath Falls saying, what's going on? What's going on? And the large rhetoric seemed to be an issue of water wars. So folks fighting over water to little water as a result of the drought was going to too few stakeholders. So these are folks who have some type of interest in how water is used and allocated in the basin. So where are we now? So during the summer of 2021, no water was allocated for any Klamath Basin farmer. 
no, as a result of the drought that was happening in the basin. And so this is how we're entering into the water year of 2021-2022. Hydrologists measure their calendar a little differently um, than our regular folks. Their calendar actually starts on October 1st and goes to September 31st every single year. So Klamath Basin water year starting October 1st, 2021. We have a lot of snow but what is that going to look like for actual water allocation during the summer? So a lot of folks are excited thinking that we're going to have water for agriculture in the basin. But is that something that's going to happen? Is that water going to be there once the temperatures get hotter? So that's kind of where we're at right now. Are a lot of folks thinking about, is the water going to be there? How is it going to be allocated? And if it's not going to be allocated fairly, how are we going to work together to actually get that water spread out to the folks who think that they have a right to need it? We're going to talk more about all the different interests that have a, a right or a stake in that water. But uh, first, you mentioned that this is uh, in 2021, the farmers got no water. That was kind of unprecedented, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. A similar thing happened in 2022. The Bureau of Reclamation said at the beginning of April, no water would be allocated. But a little bit later, I, th I believe in June, um, water was allocated to the Klamath project. Um, but 2021, a lot of folks were mad. Um, it was definitely unprecedented. There was a lot of miscommunication between the federal government and the Klamath project, folks who were receiving the water. Um, and a lot of people were angry and still angry to this day. So to, to help uh, get a, a spatial view, where exactly is the Klamath Basin and where does it eventually go to the ocean? Yeah, so thinking in the context of Corvallis, so the Klamath Basin starts um, about four and a half hours southeast of here. Um, we're looking at the border of Klamath Falls, Oregon, and Tule Lake, California, so right on the border there. And it begins there in the upper basin, um, moving down southwest <laughs> to the mid basin um, you have the communities of um, copco lake you have uh, Wairika, california and then eventually it drains further southwest on the coast of california in the lower basin um, in the community of klamath california rightfully named <laughs> <laughs> okay so um let's let's return to uh the fact that there is not enough water now for us city folk we, I just took a shower before I came, you know, I got ice water in this afternoon and like, I don't think about water that much, but for a farmer, especially in a drier part of, uh, of the state, what does water really mean to them? Right. That's the ultimate question, right? We use water in absolutely every job that we have, any type of occupation, we use that. But particularly for farmers who are farming in this area of the upper Klamath Basin, they use a lot of crops that require some type of irrigation system. So whether this is flood irrigation or drip, drip irrigation, water is being used to grow the crop, which is ultimately exported from the region. And so the the way that the project is allocated is incredibly important for the livelihood and the economy of the area, especially for farmers. But as you said, there are a lot of other different stakeholders are using the water, not just for farming. So you said stakeholder a few times. And when I hear stakeholder, I hear think of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Can you just <laughs> tell me what exactly is a stakeholder in this context? Yes. Yeah, so thinking specifically about the academic context that I'm coming from, which is the world of human dimensions of natural resources of the environment. So thinking about who has some type of interest or who is going to be affected by a decision that's being made. So when I say stakeholder or stakeholder engagement, I'm talking specifically about 
any type of person, um, any agency representative or organization who will be affected by water decisions or wants to have their opinion being heard and what type of governance decisions are being made. And in, in terms of stakeholders, right, this is the immediate problem that the um, that, that the tent that that was set up and brought national media, right? It was the immediate stakeholders that uh, that brought this to for people to notice, right? But taking a step back, what does this area and the West more more generally, what is what's the outlook for water in the future? Oh yeah, that's a very big conversation. The topic of dissertations and movies and all those great articles, but. Particularly for this dissertation, we'll take it back to the early 1800s um, when the West was, quote, being settled. We know that since time immemorial, there have been indigenous um, communities who have lived um, on the West Coast and everywhere in the United States. But this particular area is home to the Klamath, Modoc, and Yahuskin Paiute peoples, collectively known today as the Klamath tribes. They lived, worked, and played on the banks of the Upper Klamath Lake um, and do so till until this day. Um, long story short, a treaty in 1864 signed between the federal government and the Klamath tribe said that while the Klamath tribes would be allocated approximately 1 million acres um, in order to continue their livelihoods, 22 million acres um, of their indigenous land would be given or sold, however you want to say it, to the federal government. And in return, the federal government provided opportunities or programs to settle that land that was traditionally held by the Klamath tribes. And so this was being done so through programs such as the 1862 Homestead Act. Um, some might, folks might remember the Oregon Trail, the Oregon Trail game we played as millennials on the computer. <laughs> uh, so these were folks seeking better lives moving west um, for various reasons. Um, and the government provided them a certain amount of acreage for them to go on the Oregon Trail or the California Trail, whatever they did, um, to go and then settle that land. And the Klamath area, the Upper Klamath Basin, was a part of that original Homestead Act. But really, the large amount of settlers who did come to that area was the result of the 1902 Reclamation Act, which took land that was previously underwater. So this is a lot of swamp land um, that had, did have a lot of rich soil, but they took that water and either dammed it or diverted it in some type of way, which left land that was very, very rich and valuable for agriculture, for growing crops. And um, very similar to the Homestead Act, folks, particularly um, World War One and World War II veterans, were allocated plots of land for them to go and move and farm and work in this western area that was not as populated as the eastern U.S. So that's how folks came to be in the upper basin uh, of the upper Klamath Basin um, as, as a result of those original government programs that provided inf incentives for folks to move and then work and do some type of agriculture um, in that very rich soil of the upper basin. As a soil scientist, I'm a I'm I'm contractually obliged to say that these are highly productive soils. So uh, lake sediment soils, because again, the lake was drained. Uh, I mean, boy, if you want a highly productive spot for, uh, I have here that they're currently growing um, alfalfa, potatoes, peppermint. Um, what else are they, are they growing? In this yes, area? a lot of folks do horseradish. Um, a lot of just 
alfalfa, but also regular hay. Um, outside of crops, a lot of folks do beef, cattle, sheep, goats. Um, so it's a really a big range, but potatoes and onions are the two biggest breadwinners, especially for potatoes. I believe somebody told me once that 99% of the potatoes used for fries at In-N-Out Burger come from the Klamath Basin. As, as a Californian, I, I don't know how to feel about that because I, I think uh, Burgerville fries might be better. But, oh, OK, we'll, we'll stay away from that controversy. Um, OK, so going back to the to the history from, you know, early 1900s uh, over to the late 1900s, what ended up happening there in that transition? Yes. So we're fast forwarding, fast forwarding a lot. Um, but basically, um, for rural sociologists or folks who study rural sociology, we know that the 1980 farm crisis was a big economic turnaround for folks who were trying to farm in the United States. And what this meant is that there were folks who had gotten into farming or their families were part of that Reclamation Act or that original 1862 Homestead Act. And they said farming is no longer financially viable um, for us to continue this type of work. And so what you saw was a lot of folks selling off their farmland. And typically families who had more capital, more skin in the game, were ready to continue working on these agricultural operations, acquired those properties. And so you have um, the smaller agricultural operations that are leaving um, and folks sticking around who then had more resources and more land um, to continue working in the upper basin. And with more land, they also have uh, more water rights as well because they have more wells and uh, is, is that right? Um, it, it's a little difficult. Um, technically, yes, they do have more wells. Um, but the issue with drought, especially now, is that there's no water in those wells. And so it, technically, they do have more wells. But the bigger issue is that with less water being allocated to the project, the folks who do have more water or should have more water if they do, in fact, have water rights, um, is that they just don't have water in the first place. But um, the issue that is really happening in the Klamath Basin is that Folks who did stick around and do have these smaller acreage farms are frustrated with the larger farms having more um, more opinions being shared, um, having more more of their values being represented in governance organizations. So typically folks who own larger farms um, have a well, more representation on these decision making processes. Right. And so what do you do when you have um Big farms who have more employees, more time and more money to go sit in on public meetings um, and smaller farms who are operated by one or two folks um, who may not have more time to go participate in these opportunities is, um, you know, they feel less represented um, because they're not at those decision making tables. So even even farmers, you know, a big right. umbrella, right. There, there's, you know, subsets within that. OK, now let's return to the Klamath tribes. Um, there's there, there's a host of things that happened, uh, you know, after the uh, the 1864 treaty was signed until until more recently. Can you fill us in on that history? So what we saw in the mid-1950s in the Upper Klamath Basin was the result of a racist set of policies, which are collectively referred to as, quote, the Indian termination policies. And what that looked like is a system of laws and executive orders that from the mid-1940s to the mid-1960s intended to assimilate Native Americans and their communities into, quote, mainstream American society. And at that time, this idea of cultural assimilation of Native Americans was not new. This idea that tribes had to be, quote, civilized had been the basis of many U.S. policies for a long, long time. But what was new was the sense of urgency with which the federal government 
terminated their relationships with the tribe so quickly. So what that looked like with the Klamath tribe specifically was on August 13th, 1954, the Klamath Termination Act went into place. And what that looked like is all federal supervision of Klamath lands and all federal aid that was being provided to the tribes was cut off by the federal government. And each tribal member had to choose between either remaining a member of the tribe or withdrawing. And if they chose to withdraw, they would receive a monetary payment for the value of their individual share of tribal land. So in this case, the 22 million acres that had been originally ceded to the federal government back in the late 1860s. And so those tribal members who wanted to stay and wanted to stay members of the Klamath tribes entered into what they called, quote, a tribal management plan, um, which was really a trust, a financial trust relationship between the U.S. National Bank that was based out of Portland. And at that time in 1954, there were approximately 2,100 tribal members. And of that 2,100, 1,660 decided to withdraw from the tribe and accept individual land payments. So flashing forward a bit, the Klamath Restoration Act was eventually lobbied for and then adopted into law in 1986, I believe, which reestablished the Klamath as a sovereign state. But that land that was sold, quote, sold to the tribal members who chose to withdraw their membership back in 1954 was never returned. So just to try and summarize, the Klamath tribe started out with, you know, something like 23 million acres. They ceded 22 million to the government. That land was then uh, was then provided to other homesteaders. World War II vets especially were given priority after after the World War. The remaining one and a half million acres was initially kept uh, by the Klamath tribes, but then the United States in 54 were like, psych! Yeah. <laughs> uh, and th so then the Klamath tribes didn't have federal recognition until 1986, where they do have recognition, but the land, the 1.5 million acres, was not returned. Correct. So starting in 1986, now you have a whole bunch of farmers, a whole bunch of ranchers, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, uh, settlers who now depend very much on their livelihood for mm -hmm. water. But now you have the Klamath tribes who say, finally, the, the government recognizes that we have been taking care of this land for so long and we have water rights too. Correct. Yes. So, so you see why this is such a big problem, right? Because you have two groups of people who were on paper promised not only land, but also resource rights, access to water by the government. And these treaties were signed and these contracts were signed in the case of the, the settlers coming west. But now when we're in the the 2020s, how are we going to settle this issue um, when too much, too little water has been promised to too many people? So, so why can't, let's say hypothetically, why can't they just bring water in, right? Like Minnesota has a lot of lakes. Can mm -hmm. we just borrow some and, and haul it across the country? Right. In a perfect world, right? Um, so each state has a different water law system, water policies that they're governed by. And each state has you know, the right to their own water, right? So hypothetically, in order for that to happen, say hypothetically, we pipe in water from the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes and the folks who do have those water rights would have to agree that they want to sell or be, you know, very generous and just give it to the folks of the Upper Basin. Um, 
They've already agreed not to do that. They've done that with the case of, um, of Southern California and the Los Angeles area. Um, but the likelihood of that happening is, is very, very, very slim. This is a, a good point to say that, you know, while you're focusing on the Klamath River Basin as a case study, the situation that's playing out is that there's too little water promised to too many people. And this is obvious for us in the West. So in, in, the, in the Southern California San Joaquin Valley, there's, it's a functional desert, but it's a crucial agricultural reason or uh, agricultural location. Uh, the Delta in California is also facing a whole bunch of water rights issues. Uh, recently, the Supreme Court um, uh, uh, continued, a, continued a law from uh, a Mississippi versus Tennessee case where one sued the other on aquifer rights. Uh, moving forward, how we decide who gets the very limited supply of water is going to become a ubiquitous question. And your research is focused on how can we create a structure that everyone is provided input so that whatever the decision is, people can be okay with it and recognize that this is not perfect, but the world isn't perfect either. Yes. Yeah, I was recently told by the executive director of the Water Users Association in Klamath Falls that once a case or once some type of conflict gets to the litigation stage, so they're in the courts, um, there's no coming back from that. Um, it's very difficult to repair the interpersonal issue, so people fighting with people, the problems that they have in, with each other. Um, and also the organizations that those people represent, right? So not only how do you work together to try to solve these allocation issues and the issues that we're facing with climate change, but how do you get people at an er interpersonal level to trust each other more um, and to come together and work together rather than just fight and waste a lot of money doing this this issue of, of litigation that's happening all across the United States, but particularly in the West? Uh, speaking of, of litigation, we, we haven't mentioned the, uh, well, we haven't mentioned many things yet, right? But uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is that, uh, uh, I, I believe it was in 19, let's see here, late 1800, or late 1980s, uh, there was two endangered species, or two species of fish that are now considered endangered. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and the extra complication that this throws into the water problem. Yes, have the listeners got that this is complicated yet? So not only do we have all these different stakeholder groups squabbling with each other, but when the Endangered Species Act was introduced in the United States, two species of fish um, that are um, that are in the Upper Klamath Basin um, are the Schwamm and the Koptu species, which have an incredible cultural and financial significance to the Klamath tribes were placed on that Endangered Species Act. And as a result of, of that placement, every single year, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service issues a biological opinion that says what the lake level of Upper Klamath Lake needs to be in order for the Schwamm and Cop 2 species to thrive for that particular year. So what that means is that if the lake gets lower than that level, then no water will be allocated for irrigation to the Klamath project. So not only did you have these interpersonal issues that you had before the Endangered Species Act was introduced, but now you have the added issue of needing to meet this biological requirement for the, these endangered species in order for water to even be considered being let out of the upper Klamath Lake. And this is just another layer of complication. This is the upper Klamath Lake, right? So the so the Oregon portion yes. of this basin. Yeah. There are other fish 
that mm -hmm. also need help in the lower part of the basin. Yes, yes, we haven't even gotten into the salmon. And the I will say this is the reason why I decided to focus solely on the upper basin rather than the mid or the lower is just because there's so much going on and um, particularly in the mid and the lower basin, um, salmon populations are in trouble again um, because they are placed on, I believe it's the coho salmon is placed on the endangered species list. The same thing happens with the Schwamm and the cop too. There's a biological opinion that needs to be met every year. Um, and if it's not met, then the landowners who have um, some type of uh, water right um, need to be able to meet that biological opinion. Um, so again, as a result, <laughs> they have a lot of folks coming in looking at water levels, looking at quality concerns. Um, and these salmon populations are particularly of importance to the Karuk and the Yurok tribes, um, which are based in the mid and the lower basin. In the mid and lower basin are now the, the, the Northern California and the coastal Cal California. Exactly. Side of yeah. To keep the geography there. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so there's there's all different kinds of tribes. There's all different kinds of, of farmers and ranchers and all different kinds of time scales on, you know, who was here when and who was promised what. And all different kinds of endangered fish. Yes. And all the different Can't kinds of the fish. fish. <laughs> so tell us how you're going or how is the how is the community that, that you're focusing on, how are they beginning to address some of these issues? Yes, so this is something that I've seen since I began my field work in September is going to different agency meetings or organization meetings. They're, they may be talking to each other behind closed doors, but what it seems to be is that everybody wants to have a conversation with different groups. And there's been a really big call for engagement with the different types of people and different types of organizations who are involved in these decision-making practices. But the issue that it seems is that nobody's really spearheading this effort, or if they are spearheading this effort, it's not being documented in public settings. So like I, as a researcher, can't find if these efforts are happening. So what I'm looking at is seeing is stakeholder engagement happening, particularly with water governance concerns in the clam uh, specifically the upper Klamath Basin. And if these, if these engagement efforts are happening, what do they look like? Who is being involved? And as a result of these projects, what, if anything, is being changed? So do, fee, do people feel more represented by the government when they're involved in stakeholder engagement programs? Do they feel like they can trust each other or the government more more better, <laughs> trust them and the government better? Um, and then do they feel like they're a bigger part of the community or like they have some type of bigger stake and understanding of why people are making the decisions that they're making? So I'm going to put on my utilitarian hat and, and say, okay, hey, look, here's this bucket of water. There's 100 units of water. The fish need 30 units. There's 30 units. Uh, the tribes need another 10 units. There's 10 units. The farmers need, you know, this many units. Just just do it, right? We, we, we already know exactly how much farmers are, are irrigating. We know that the fish need more water. So just make the scientific decision and just let it be. Mm -hmm. why, why is that maybe not so wise? Yeah. Have you, um, have you interacted with people lately? Um, <laughs> folks, folks have a lot of attitudes. You know, we have to think not only do you have the history of the interactions that people have with each other, but this just isn't an organization versus an organization issue. Um, there are real people who are making these decisions and there are real people who are going to live as a result of the decisions that are being made. And so we kind of need to take a step back and get at the ground level of 
How are you going to get people to work together? Um, people who have different opinions, different political affiliations, they look differently, they think differently, um, they have a different history, background, and values. Um, and really, these type of stakeholder engagement efforts need to be done so people can come to know each other on an individual basis and less under a blanket affiliation of, oh, that person's with, for example, the Bureau of Reclamation. Um, we know how that person thinks or we know what's going to happen. But rather than thinking of, oh, so-and-so is a person and thinks this particular way, and that may not be the way that the Bureau represents themselves, but maybe we can work with this person to have a decision be made and have that happen and work it effectively. The, the work that you're doing really focuses a lot on how do you build trust between communities because only with trust can you actually come to some agreement that will not only be accepted today, but will also be accepted into the future. Um, so can, would you be able to describe some of what your field work looks like? Yes, absolutely. So like I said, I started field work in September, September of 2021, and I moved directly from Pennsylvania. And so I now live predominantly in Klamath Falls. And what that field look has looked like is a, sitting in on a lot of public meetings, um, most of which have been in person, some over Zoom, obviously with the times that we're in right now. Um, ultimately, I will be interviewing folks. I have a list of, I think, 250 potential interviewees. So interviews haven't happened yet. Um, but I'll be getting out and actually talking with folks and then a lot of archival work and policy work. But the the method that folks are most excited about down in the basin is this program called Photo Voice, which is something I did for my master's thesis. But long story short, it involves folks actually getting cameras in their hands, taking pictures associated with a specific question or a specific theme and thinking about how can we tell the broader story of water in the Klamath Basin through photos and through captions and then work together in these smaller focus groups um, to share what it looks like for us and our own experiences with water in the upper basin. Um, thinking about how to tell those stories and potentially increase um, that trust um, that we've talked about before. So those are the different projects I'm working on right now. And speaking of trust, how do you gain, tr how do you, how do you gain some of the trust that, uh, that of the people that you're there, you know, living around. Cause like, I imagine that this is a pretty tight knit community. Everyone probably knows kind of everyone and you're an outsider. Yeah. So anybody from a rural area or any type of researcher who does work with rural communities knows that if you have this random young person just walking in and you don't know who they are, what is the likelihood that you're going to tell them their life story, right? So one of the things I always like to make clear um, with the folks that I'm engaging with in research is that I actually did grow up on a very small beef ranch in a rural town, not in the basin, but in Southwest Oregon, which has very similar issues to what they're dealing with. Um, usually I'm the only, I'm the youngest person in the room. I'm usually the only woman in the room as well. And so you're thinking about not only do these people not know me and if they've never seen me before, but then I don't look like them too, right? And so very quickly you have to establish your your rapport, right? I grew up on a beef ranch. I'm very familiar with the issues that you're dealing with. Um, also, I look like your daughter. I'm the age of your daughter. And so um, definitely using that to my advantage, right? And then I also recognize that um, I am white. Um, I do have thin privilege, um, all these different things that work to my advantage in the type of work that I'm doing. Um, so yeah, it's been really fun. It's been difficult. Um, 
you know, I'm glad I had a break. There was some burnout I was working with for a little bit. And so so it's um, it's nice to be able to step away um, and be in Corvallis for some time um, to step away from the field, because as we said, it's very complicated. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it sounds like a heck of a lot of work. So I'm glad you're able to take a little bit of a break. Um, for folks that are interested in the Photo Voice Project, you can find a link to both Hannah's website and her Photo Voice Project that she conducted for her master's thesis uh, on our blog. Um, could you describe a little bit more of, of this? Because I really love this idea of uh, people being able to tell their own stories through photos. And then there's also a, a focus group after the fact as well, right? Yeah, so maybe it would help a little bit if I explain the origins of why I'm even doing a photo voice project in the upper basin in the first place. So back in mid-September, I was observing a farm tour event hosted by the Klamath Water Users Association. And that uh, event took us on a big charter bus around to um, small farms and farm agency organizations and uh, related Klamath Basin wildlife refugees um, in the communities of Merrill, Malin, and Tule Lake. And I remember at our very first stop, I was approached by a woman who I later found out was a local family photographer. And she introduced herself and asked what I was doing in the basin. And when we were sitting on the bus later, we were having a conversation about my past work at Penn State and my master's thesis photo voice project. And I remember I was describing um, all the different things that we were able to do with connecting with policymakers and being able to tell people's stories through photography and caption writing and really thinking about how do you connect with people and how do you show them what it's like to grow food in a place without physically bringing them there. And I remember she was very enthusiastic and she said, we need something like that here. And so after um, our conversation and our meeting on the Harvest Tour, I started talking with a couple of different stakeholders about their interest and the possibility of doing a photo voice project like I did for my master's thesis in the Upper Basin. And once I got approval from a key, a couple of key stakeholders, I applied for funding specifically from Penn State to help fund a photo voice project. And lo and behold, a few months later, I was notified that I did in fact receive funding to carry out a photo voice project in the upper basin. So what that's going to look like is in a couple of months, I'm going to start recruiting a cohort of about 20 to 25 folks who identify as upper basin farmers, ranchers, or if they're a family member of those farmers and ranchers. And we will meet together for um, kind of like an introductory, get to know you, what is this project about information session. And if they're interested in continuing with the project, everybody will be allocated a little point and shoot camera, uh, a disposable camera that they will be able to take with them home. And over the next couple of weeks, take pictures of what they think best represents the question or the theme that the group comes up with, the cohort comes up with. And so I imagine this is going to be something like, uh, what does it look like to grow food in the upper basin? What does it mean for my family to have water? What does water mean to us? Um, ultimately, what the project focuses on is going to be decided by those cohort members. And so I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like now. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I'm really excited to see where this goes. Hannah, I got to say, I am really excited to see where this research goes, not only because, like I said before, like this is 
you know, quote unquote, a case study in the Klamath River Basin. But the, the things that you find out about how people can, uh, can one, be informed on the issues, but also make sure that their voice is heard in whatever way is possible, that ensures that future issues dealing with water scarcity can be addressed in the best way possible. So I wish you all the best of luck. Thank I am, you. I am definitely going to read your dissertation when it's oh, out, God. whether or not you believe me. You'll I'm, be the only one. <laughs> and, and and your committee members, yes, right? Maybe. Uh, maybe your committee members. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but we're coming to the end of our show. and We have two traditions. Brian, you want to start us out? Yeah, yeah. So our first tradition is, of course, um, soliciting some advice. So that could be advice to your past self, uh, advice to other grad students, advice to the sociologist digging through these archives a thousand years from now, wondering what being a grad student in 2022 is like. Yes. Um, so I was thinking about this, uh, particularly from my background as a first generation student, a first generation low income rural student. And thinking about the big taboos when it comes to academia or to just college in general. And with that being said, the first piece of advice I would give is if you have any question at all or you're interested in working with a faculty member and you've never met them before and you don't know how to get that conversation started is to just email them, like just reach out, say hi in the hall. Um, just introduce yourself in some shape or form, because I would always think that folks were too busy or they didn't care or they didn't have time for a lowly little undergrad. But now that I'm on the other side of the table a little bit, um, I love to hear from people. I love when random people email me and ask questions, whether they're my colleagues or undergraduates here at Oregon State. So first piece of advice is to just reach out and email the person. The worst thing they can do is ignore you. Um, so I hope that doesn't happen to you, but just, just do it. And the second piece of advice I would give is particularly again for, for graduate students coming from low income, rural first generation backgrounds is, um, we have a lot of, right. Grad school costs a lot of money, um, and opportunities for professional development also cost a lot of money. And what if you want to do an opportunity that costs thousands of dollars, that would be great to build your CV but it's not in the wheelhouse right now. Um, again, just ask. Um, there is probably a pot of money somewhere that somebody has been sitting on for a while and <laughs> they're just waiting for you to use it. Um, so I've had so many opportunities where there's been activities or some type of conference I wanted to participate in that um, was not going to be financially feasible for me at the time, but I brought it up to my advisor or to a committee member and they had that or they knew someone who had funds or they found them somewhere and um, just having some type of advocate who can look for that money somewhere um, is something that you should definitely look out for and so yeah that second piece of advice there is money somewhere with your name on it don't be afraid to ask about it um, and don't be afraid to talk about money because you're never going to get anything done if you don't the second tradition we have is to ask you for a song. What song did you choose and why? Yeah, so I was debating this topic with my friend Matt. I promised I'd give him a shout out. So here's your shout out, Matt. And we were talking about what song would I want to be played out to? And um, I was thinking, oh, I wanted it to be like a personal song, something that meant something to me. And he said, no, you need to do something that goes with your dissertation. So I said, okay. Um, there are not a lot of songs about water, um, but um, the one that I've chosen for you all today is Luke Bryan's Rain is a Good Thing, which I believe is something the Klamath Basin would love to hear right now. Okay, with that, 
Thank you so much for your time, Hannah. I am really excited to see where this goes. And uh, yeah, we'll be on again next Sunday as we are every Sunday. But with that, here's Luke Bryan doing my thing. Sorry, rain is a good thing. <laughs> Same thing. Dude, my thing is the album. You were close. <laughs>